Good afternoon. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the uh, VHS, and I'm delighted to see a nice full room here today. The weather cooperated in the snow that I asked to be delayed at least until tomorrow. Uh, obeyed, so I'm really happy that you're here. And welcome to the first banner lecture of 2010 here in the Robbins Family Forum at the VHS. And as always, I need to begin by thanking the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. And now, if you'll silence your cell phones, please, it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. It's difficult to believe, especially for those of us here on staff, but uh, the 150th anniversary of the Civil War is rapidly approaching. In fact, it's about a year away. Virginia has had a sesquicentennial commission in place for some time now, and we've started commemorating the events leading up to our great national tragedy. Indeed, the VHS will be opening a blockbuster exhibition on the Civil War almost exactly one year from today. Almost 150 years after the fact, Robert E. Lee remains a towering figure of that era, an acclaimed strategist and an enigmatic personality. One of the largest and most important collections here at the VHS are the Lee family papers. Going back to the days of Douglas Southall Freeman, historians have used these papers to write about the general. More recently, scholars like Emery Thomas and Elizabeth Pryor have frequented our reading room researching their biographies of Lee. Well, now we have another distinguished contribution to the long line of Lee studies. In his new book, the latest in the critically received Great General series, Noah Andre Trudeau presents an insightful narrative about the Confederacy's preeminent military leader. Mr. Trudeau, who goes by Andy, and I did not know that until we uh, met today, is a former executive producer at National Public Radio, and he is a truly prolific writer. His earlier books include studies on the Gettysburg Campaign, Sherman's March to the Sea, the Siege of Petersburg, African-American soldiers in the Civil War, and the Battles of the Wilderness, and Cold Harbor. So please join me in welcoming Noah Andy Trudeau. Well, thank you very much, and thank you all for coming out here. Uh, I must admit to being very honored and humbled to be uh, speaking on this subject in this place, uh, and I hope I'll do honor to the, to the topic I have to deal with here. I also have to admit to finding myself being a little surprised to be standing up in front of you and talking on the, uh, the single topic of Robert E. Lee. I have to admit I am not a big fan of biographies. I've read my fair share, but I always find there's questions I want answered when I start, and I rarely find them answered when I've finished. And really, I have to tell you, this, this book is really not intended to be, nor should it be confused with a biography. It is necessarily biographical, but the, the focus of this uh, series is really on generalship, and especially with uh, General Wesley Clark as editor. Uh, I felt I had a free reign to really focus in on Lee's decision process throughout the war, and perhaps in that manner help illuminate a little bit uh, towards an understanding of this character. Having said that, and, and, and you can tell from this book 
this, this was a uh, part of a series. The series was limited to 60,000 words, so I had to be very concise. And I'm confident that I've really said all I wanted to say about Lee in the, in the course of this, which led me to an interesting challenge, especially here and with this audience, is how can I possibly explore a topic on Robert E. Lee that might offer some fresh ideas or fresh perspectives to you. And I figured my hosts were not going to be interested in a five-minute talk and a 55-minute question and answer period. <laughs> so I, after a lot of thinking, decided I'd, I'd like to engage in what I'm going to call historically informed speculation. I want to spend the time talking with you about something that never happened, about a book that was never written, talk a little bit about how it got to be there and how it got to be that way, and then, which I hope will be the more interest, most interesting part, speculate on what we might have learned had such a book been written. I'm talking, of course, about the book Robert E. Lee wanted to write right after the Civil War. Uh, which he had a working title of The History of the Campaigns of the Army of Northern Virginia. I'm sure had it existed, this speech wouldn't be necessary because it'd be so familiar to all of you that I wouldn't necessarily have to talk about much of it. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting misinformation out there. You know, the, web's, the Internet's a wonderful thing, but you always have to sort of apply some common sense as well. There's one national park service site that says that the aged Lee never discussed the war nor wrote about his wartime experiences. Lee was sincere in his feelings and not discussing the war or the results of it. Well, that's patently not true. So I want to do this in two parts. First, talk a little bit about how the book almost came to be written, and then to journey into the pages of that book and see what we might have found out that might be new and interesting to all of you. And I need to acknowledge that uh, a lot of the background for the writing of the book came from a very fine article that was published 47 years ago by the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography about Lee's unfinished memoir. It was just a couple of months, just two months after Appomattox Courthouse, that Lee got a letter from a colleague uh, that he had known during the war who was then living in Canada. The letter was very clear, urging Lee to give to the world and posterity a faithful history of the causes of the late terrible conflict and the manner in which the war was conducted on either side. Now, it's interestingly that it was the same month as that letter, and we're talking July 1865, that there was a knock at the door and Lee had a visit from a New York City publisher named Charles B. Richardson. While Lee's correspondent wanted Lee to write a sort of total history of the war, this publisher named Charles B. Richardson was more focused. He wanted Lee to write a military history of the Civil War. Well, even that was a little more than Lee wanted to take on, so he counterproposed a history of the campaigns of the Army of Northern Virginia. He said his only problem was he needed subordinates' reports and other material that was lost during the war. The publisher agreed to help him find it. It's some measure of Lee's interest in this project that he immediately began sending out circular letters 
to all of the officers whose addresses he knew and who served under him. This was a, I won't call it the first, but it was certainly an early form of a forum letter. Each began almost exactly the same. It said, I'm desirous that the bravery and devotion of the Army of Northern Virginia be correctly transmitted to posterity. This is the only tribute that can now be paid to the worth of the noble officers and soldiers. On most of these letters, Lee would then customize the closing part where he would specify certain reports or periods of time that he was especially interested in. And these letters began spreading throughout the South. Well, then and now, there were leaks. Sooner or later, uh, one or two of the officers he got mentioned to a newspaper editor that they had gotten this letter from Lee and that Lee was working on this book. And then, not too surprisingly, Lee began getting letters from common people throughout the United States encouraging him to move forward with this project. One gentleman from North Carolina said that uh, Lee should favor the world with his version of the matter because we believe it will be the only true history written on that painful subject. There was a Pennsylvanian who wrote that now telling Lee, don't dawdle. He said it should be done while everything is fresh. And one of the few times Lee actually wrote back to one of these correspondents, he told the Philadelphian that it's my purpose, unless prevented, to write the history of the campaigns in Virginia. And, of course, not only did Lee get fan mail, he got other publishers come calling. There was a gentleman from Cincinnati who offered an advance of $50,000 if Lee would write the book for him. Another offered basically an unlimited proposal. He said, we'll offer more than anything you can imagine. Richardson was proposing no money up front. Lee's income was going to be a percentage of sales. And if you didn't have a lot of money to put on the table, well, perhaps a little Southern patriotism would do the job. There was another publisher, then living in New York, who said that he was based in North Carolina, but that the Fortunes of war had forced him and his family to move north, and he hoped that Lee would, you know, give his uh, best thoughts to another Southerner. Lee's brother, Charles Carter, suggested that if Robert self-published the book, it ought to bring in, and this is uh, Charles's figure, at least $100,000. And I should note that at the time Lee accepted the position of president at Washington College, his starting salary was $1,500. And there was strong interest from England and Canada, and even offers to translate the work into French, German, and Italian. In all, there were at least 11 different publishers who sent Lee's prospectus about writing the book. Now, we all know that the book never happened. But does that mean that it really doesn't exist in some form out there? Now, this is one of those cases. I'm I'm one of these people who believe you can have a variety of very diverse interests, and there's going to be odd times when they dovetail together. I happen to really enjoy classical music. I've become especially interested in a phenomenon, really, of the last 25, 30 years, where great composers leave behind pieces and and segments for a piece they intended to write but never got around to writing before they died. 
And now we're in an age where a new generation of musicians are coming along, taking those fragments, those pieces, those elements, and fusing them into the work that the composer never got around to finishing. And in doing the research for this book, I have to confess that I really came across a lot of material I had never really looked at before. Even though I I couldn't use it given the small format, I felt it was important to get a a sense of everything, so I really threw a, a very wide net. And I was amazed at the wealth of information that's out there. Now, we're talking personal letters, of which there are many. We're talking wartime correspondence, wartime communications, wartime reports, uh, post-war conversations and letters and comments that Lee made about the, the conflict. So I began to wonder, what if I looked at that totality of those fragments and those pieces and those elements, and I began to wonder, could we at least construct a framework of what might have been in this book? and what we might have been revealed to us in the course of this book. Not revealed not in the sense of, of new, but that it's been hidden in these odd little nooks and corners. And if we brought it all together and laid it all out, might it not help us add some dimension to this character? So let's, you know, in terms of shape, I suspect it would have followed something like uh, James Longstreet's From Manassas to Appomattox, which... For all those who have looked at it, know that it doesn't begin in Manassas and it doesn't end in Appomattox. It starts before and ends after those subjects. So I think this book would have had a first chapter that would have looked at Lee's family history with a special emphasis on his father. Now, what I really didn't know until I did the research here was that not long before his death in 1870, Lee did write an extensive biographical study of his father. Uh, The favored publisher who had come to him first about doing the military book, uh, Mr. Richardson, reprinted the memoir of the Revolutionary War written by Lee's father. And for that book, Robert E. Lee wrote a very extensive introduction. And in looking over it, I was especially taken by Lee's description of his father, and this is what Robert E. Lee tells us, that Light Horse Harry Lee excelled his illustrious contemporaries, Marshall, Madison, Hamilton, Governor Morris, and Ames. It was in a surprising quickness and talent, a genius sudden, dazzling, and always at command, with an eloquence which seemed to flow unbidden. His powers of conversation were also fascinating in the extreme, possessing those rare and admirable qualities which seize and hold captive his hearers, delighting while they instruct. What makes this even more stand out for me is the fact that knowing the family history and the fact that uh, Light Horse Harry Lee left his family to seek fortune in the Caribbean, never to return alive, and at the time he left, Robert E. Lee was all of six years old. I think this speaks a little bit to the strange power that this parent, this father, had on this boy who really never knew his father. Now, let's flip a few pages and skip ahead to the, uh, the Mexican War. 
where Lee plays a rather active role, uh, first under Zachary Taylor and then under Winfield Scott. Uh, Lee is clearly tagged as an officer of promise. He's serving in southern Texas, northern Mexico under uh, Taylor when he is hijacked and appended to the staff of General Scott for the operations landing on the coast of Mexico and ending with the capture of Mexico City. One element that came out of Lee's writing and memories of this campaign are an eye for detail that I've never really seen reflected in his official correspondence. Again, the the writings that I think we most often encounter about Lee, uh, the reports of the battles, some of the correspondence. Yet here's a man that when he wanted to could really paint a scene. And here's a scene. Uh, The Americans had landed on the Mexican coast, secured a bridgehead, and General Scott is landing and coming ashore. And here is Lee's first-hand description of that arrival. He says, The troops were all drawn up in the bank of the river and fired a salute as he passed them. He landed at the market, where lines of sentinels were placed to keep off the crowd. In front of the landing, the artillery was drawn up, which received him in the center of the column and escorted him through the streets to his lodgings. They had provided a handsome gray horse, richly caparisoned for him, but he preferred to walk with his staff around him and a dragoon led the horse behind us. The windows along the streets we passed were crowded with people and the boys and girls were in great glee, the Governor's Island Band playing all the time. So uh, Lee really as a descriptive writer of events, something I don't think we really associate a great deal with him. Lee could also tell a story with a a dry sense of humor. Early in his service uh, with Winfield Scott, Lee undertakes a uh, very dangerous reconnaissance that the the Mexicans had taken a blocking position in a pass, and it was believed there was a trail that would lead around the flank. Uh, The trail is first found by uh, another young lieutenant named Beauregard on the uh, general staff, But on the next day, he's too sick to take to the field, and uh, General Scott's anxious to get a clear read on the viability of that path as for a flanking force. So Lee and a local Mexican scout go out on that route. And Lee, being determined to do a good job, keeps pushing along until he has clearly penetrated into the rear area of the Mexican uh, uh, position and finds himself somewhat trapped Uh, by parties of Mexicans moving around, so he and his uh, guide have to lay low for most of the day and into the night. And when he finally returns uh, with the information many hours after he was expected back, he finds that many of his friends had already given him up for dead. But, he writes, and this is Lee now uh, quoting, the most delighted man to see me was the old Mexican, the father of my guide, with whom I had been last seen by any of our people, and whom the general had arrested and proposed to hang if I was not forthcoming. (laughs) Uh, Later, as military operations come to a halt, while generally fruitless negotiations take place, I think Lee shows himself a a preference uh, uh, to be a man of action over talking. 
He says, I might make a rough diplomatist, but a tolerably quick one. So another, I think, a little insight into Lee at that period. I have to say, it's tempting. To me, and, and you'll forgive me if I skip a little bit in, in the subject, but I think it'll, it'll tie together. To me, the, the moment of mystery, a man, this man, comes in 1862 outside of this city, Richmond, when he assumes command of the Army of Northern Virginia. He is so fully endowed with the abilities to take command and to operate as a commanding officer and a general and to formulate plans and to oversee their execution from a man who never commanded much more than a company of cavalry before then. You, you, you feel an obligation that somehow you're going to be able to figure out how this happened. And, and looking back at the Mexican War, there's a, a, a temptation to foreshadow, you know, like, well, he did this and this points to this later, and he did this and this points to this later. I'm not convinced because, you know, it's 15 years, and that's a long time in anybody's life, and it's hard to believe that a particular point of view or skill set necessarily survives all the experiences that will intervene between him taking over the army and his experiences there. Now, I suspect after the Mexican War chapter, this book would doubtless have another large chapter on Lee's service in Texas with the 2nd United States Cavalry. Here again, I find some aspects to Lee that I think may surprise some of you. For instance, he writes about spending time at Fort Brown, modern Brownsville, in 1857. He says, My daily walks were alone, up and down the banks of the river, and my pleasure was derived from my own thoughts and from the sight of the flowers and animals I there met with. Now, when you think of that august and somewhat, I think, intimidating image of Lee, you don't think of someone who can tell a good story. And it's from this period of his service in Texas with the 2nd United States Cavalry that Lee tells, I think, uh, a, a wonderful story. And, I, and you'll forgive me, it's a little longer quote than the others in, in this little talk, but I think, I think it holds together, but you'll, you'll tell me. So this is Lee telling a story of something that happened to him while he's in Texas. He says, on May 23, 1856, I was called upon to visit Katamase, the head chief of the Southern Comanches. He was reported to be quite sick and wanted a big medicine man. His lodges were only two miles below where I was posted, and when I presented myself before the tribal leaders on my big horse, Bald Eagle, attended by an orderly dragoon, the explosion among the curs, children, and women was tremendous. The native medicine men rushed at me and made significant signs that I must disrobe before presenting myself before the august patient. I patiently sat on my horse till I ascertained what garment they considered most inimical to the practice of the healing art, which I learned to be the cravat. Then alighting, unbuttoning my coat and stripping off the noxious article, I displayed to their admiring eyes a blue check shirt and was greeted by a general approving humph. <laughs> the charm was fully developed and I walked boldly in. The lodge was carpeted with buffalo robes. 
The sick man was stretched on his couch with his wives and suitors around him. His shield, bow, and quiver were suspended in the outside, near which stood his favorite horse, ready to be slain, to bear the spirit of his master to the far hunting ground. I thought him laboring under an attack of pleurisy, so I administered a loaf of bread and some sugar, of which I knew him to be very fond and which I had carried with me. Upon taking my leave, I told him I would send a man to complete his cure. So, a Lee story from his service with the uh, second. Here's another uh, one where, again, just, just power, good, strong, descriptive skills. Fourth of July, 1856. Part of this day was spent, after a march of 30 miles, on a branch of the Brazos under my blanket, which was elevated on four sticks driven into the ground as a sunshade. The sun was fiery hot, the atmosphere like the blast from a hot air furnace, the water salt. Still, my feelings for my country were as ardent, my faith in her future as true, and my hopes for her advancement as unabated as if called forth under more propitious circumstances. A little burst of patriotism there that uh, I think is interesting. And I'm sure, too, that if uh, Lee had gotten around to write this book in this chapter, he will have told us a little bit more about the pet he kept while a soldier, a pet rattlesnake. (laughs) Well, now, I'm sure with this book, uh, most of us would have skipped these earlier chapters to get to the good stuff anyway, the, 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 the Civil War. Right after the war ended... A number of northern papers made it a point to vilify Lee for his decision to join the Confederacy. As an officer of the United States Army, they felt that he had committed a a, a terrible act by doing this. And in some discussions at that point, and even uh, literally a uh, testimony before a congressional committee in Washington, Lee felt he needed to explain why he did it. And here's what he said. He said, the action of the state in withdrawing itself from the government of the United States as carrying the individuals of the state along with it, that the state was responsible for the act, not the individual. He said that the act of Virginia in withdrawing herself from the United States carried me along as a citizen of Virginia and that her laws and her acts were binding on me. So there's an explanation. Concerning his actual decision to resign, Lee, after the war, said it was a hard thing, thinking as he did that secession was foolish and the war wrong to break loose and come south. He said, I did believe that at the time that it was an unnecessary condition of affairs and might have been avoided if forbearance and wisdom had been practiced on both sides. Now, to me... I think the most revealing comment he makes came in a letter where I think you can get a sense of the struggle he faced when he made the decision. And he says, with all my devotion to the Union and the feeling of loyalty and duty of an American citizen, I have not been able to make up my mind to raise my hand against my relatives, my children, my home. So in a way, say what you will about the the, the higher ideas of of service to country. Uh, I think with Lee, it often came down to a very personal issue of family, and that that may explain something there. 
Lee's first postings, uh, besides being in Richmond as uh, advisor to President Davis, are first to northwestern Virginia and then to South Carolina. And in each of them, we find Lee realizing that war is a lot more serious than most of the citizens he saw around him were taking it to be. Uh, Talking about West Virginia, he says, I found it difficult to get our people, unaccustomed to the necessities of war, to comprehend and promptly execute the measures required for the occasion. And in South Carolina, where again he faced a similar situation where the actions he urged were largely ignored, he said, things looked dark to me, and it was plain we had not suffered enough, labored enough, repented enough to deserve success. It's during this period that Lee acquires the animal that I suspect may be the best-known horse of the Civil War, Traveler. Now, before doing my research, I have to say I never realized that Lee had himself described the creature. So here is Lee's own description of Traveler. He was of fine proportions, muscular figure, deep chest and short back, strong haunches, flat legs, small head, broad forehead, delicate ears, quick eye, small feet, and black mane and tail. So, Lee talking about Traveler. Now comes, again, that, that, that period of great mystery for me, and I, I think for most biographers of Lee, of trying to explain how from a staff officer, uh, an officer who in two assignments had come away with really no positive successes in in Northwest Virginia or in South Carolina, who during the course of his pre-Civil War experience had never commanded much more than a company of United States Cavalry, how in taking over he suddenly is the Lee, I think we all begin to have in in our mind's eye. And here is a few things that after the war, Lee talked about uh, concerning the Seven Days Campaign, his first as a commander of Confederate forces. He says, when I took command on Johnston's wounding, I found it would be necessary to strike a blow, although most of the generals in the army were opposed to this. Yet there's no wavering on Lee's part, even though all the off- many of the officers around him were hesitant and fearful, it didn't infect him. He said, at the time, I wish that the mantle of command had fallen upon an abler man or that I would be able to drive our enemies back to their homes. I had no ambition and no desire but for the attainment of this object and only wished for its accomplishment most speedily and thoroughly. Now, this is a comment I found in a letter that I think speaks to Lee's understanding of how command in the Civil War would have differed than command in the pre-war period. He said, I tried tried hard to make my officers understand that there was a great difference between mercenary armies and volunteer armies, and consequently there must be a difference in the mode of discipline. The volunteer army was more easily disciplined by encouraging a patriotic spirit 
than by a strict enforcement of the Articles of War. I think a simple understanding that many of Lee's peers never really grasped. There's certainly a school of discussion about Lee that singles him out for adapting generally tactics of the offensive that inherently are going to be more costly in casualties. Some have gone far enough to even suggest that it was this, this philosophy that ultimately doomed the Confederacy because it could not sustain the casualty lists that Lee's victories often produced. We forget in this sort of abstract argument that the architect of these tactics was a flesh-and-blood individual with emotions of his own. And it's in the context of the seven days, which were horrendously hard-fought battles of great loss to the Confederate Army, that Lee writes, he says, Our heavy losses caused me deep grief. Indeed, the loss of our gallant officers and men throughout the army caused me to weep tears of blood and to wish I would never hear the sound of a gun again. Now let's jump ahead, flip a few more pages in this book. I hope you're almost always almost seeing me flipping it here in front of you. And let's go to Sharpsburg, or Antietam, bloodiest single day of the war. Here Lee is sending some mixed messages. On the one hand, on several interviews he gave after the war, he said very clearly, I went to Maryland to feed my army. On another occasion, he said, my movement was simply intended to threaten Washington, call the Federal Army north of the Potomac, relieve our territory, and enable us to subsist the army. So it suggests he had no greater objective in his campaign. Yet on another occasion, he admits, I went in Maryland to give battle. Now this allows me to briefly give you my sort of 30-cent overview of Lee's Civil War career, because I really believe it falls into three parts. I believe from the, from the start of the Seven Days to the conclusion of the Gettysburg Campaign, Lee was operating with the objective of destroying, of bringing the enemy army to battle in such a way that he destroyed the army, believing that that would force politicians in the North to come to the negotiating table. Not that it would conquer the North, but it would so demoralize the Northern leadership that they would be willing to sit down and talk. After Gettysburg, where clearly he believed he had the right army, the right tactics, the right situation, and he couldn't deliver that victory, I think Lee undergoes a sort of crisis of faith. He offers his resignation and ultimately comes to believe a new role for himself, that of using his skill and his army to buy time. That enough time will pass that the, the, the political process will generate and resolve the war. This is the second phase. And the third really comes in the spring of 1865 when Lee is rudely apprised of the fact that President Jefferson Davis is not interested in negotiation. It's victory or death. And I think that forces Lee at that point to find a personal and professional exit strategy to, to get him out of the war. 
All of which brings us back to Maryland, what, what Lee's real purpose was here. And again, some interesting comments after the war that Lee makes. Um, briefly, uh, he moves into Frederick, Maryland, splits his army, dispatches the largest part of it under Stonewall Jackson to subdue some federal garrisons at Harper's Ferry and other points over there. He's using the other portion to threaten and actually intending to enter Pennsylvania. When much to his surprise, the Union Army begins to act uncharacteristically aggressive under George McClellan, pushes towards him, forces him to uh, take that smaller portion of his army and, and draw a line behind Antietam Creek outside of Sharpsburg. What was Lee's intention at this point, which you think for most officers there'd be just gratitude that they've escaped, not Lee? He said, had McClellan continued his cautious policy for two or three days longer, I would have had all my troops reconcentrated on the Maryland side, stragglers up, men rested, and I intended then to attack McClellan, hoping to crush his army, which was to a great extent disorganized and demoralized. And on the day after the bloodiest battle of the Civil War, when Lee is still holding his army on the field, again, speaking after the war, he said, I remember distinctly that at Sharpsburg we held a large part of the battlefield, that we remained in line of battle the whole of the next day, expecting and in fact hoping for an attack, and that we only withdrew upon information that the enemy was being largely reinforced. In one case, I think we're going to find that Lee, after the war, and probably when he came to write this book, might have muddied the waters instead of clarified them, and that has to do with the famous lost order. As I'm sure most of you know, uh, Lee's operational orders for this campaign, a copy of which came into the possession of General McClellan, then informed McClellan's tactics. After the war, it's clear from his conversations that Lee began to believe that he had realized this had happened just before the Battle of Antietam, when it's very clear that really no one on the southern side had a clue what was going on until the early part of 1863 when McClellan's official report was published and the story of the Lost Dispatch was first told. Now let's skip ahead to after Fredericksburg, another, another one of those little moments where even in the midst of all this stress and tension and conflict, Lee can find a moment of quiet humor. Uh, we're in Fredericksburg on a cold February day, and it's two months after the great battle. And he says, the cars have arrived and brought me a young French officer, full of vivacity and ardent for service with me. I think the appearance of things will cool him. If they do not, the night will, for he, for he brought no blankets. Um, I could be flipping through more pages on this, but I think I want to talk a little bit about... Um, oh, what chapter shall I look at? Lee certainly, after the war, had opinions on a number of officers, and some of them uh, may surprise you. For instance, really after his death... Confederate writings about Gettysburg began to single out James Longstreet as the culprit for a lot of the failed decisions of that battle. But Lee in his conversations clearly indicates that uh, his concerns were both of General Stuart and General Ewell for not 
carrying out the roles he had assigned to them in the battle. He mentioned his corps commanders in general, but again, only singles out Ewell and Stuart. And now, on one occasion, when he was talking to a cousin, the cousin asked him a question. I suspect that if you and I had been privileged to be sitting in that conversation, we would have asked. And he said, uh, General Lee, uh, who, in your opinion, was the best Union general you faced? And I don't know if uh, you would know the answer, because Lee answered, by all accounts, he was absolutely certain. He said, McClellan. So all of this begs the question, with all this material available, why did Lee ultimately not write the book? Well, I think there's some obvious reasons. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's fun uh, on taking an argument to always immediately go to obscure things, but you should never ignore the obvious ones. He had a full-time job as president of Washington College. And Lee, I think, believed that he had a new role, which was to help guide a, a future generation of Southern leaders. He said, no one could have more at heart the welfare of the young men of our country than I have. It is the hope of doing something for the benefit of those at the South that led me to take my present office. Lee also, I think, the more he began to think seriously about writing this book, the more he saw the minefield that was in front of him. Perhaps consistent with our image of Lee, this was a man who did not relish controversy. And I think in one moment of self-revelation, Stonewall Jackson's widow gave him an advanced copy of a a very positive biography of her husband by R.L. Dabney. In his report back to her, Lee said, I should have liked it more had questions and topics calculated to excite unpleasant discussion been omitted. I think its publication would then produce more general pleasure and satisfaction. Uh, When Joseph Johnston asked Lee to support him on some issues he was raising with President Davis and subordinates, Lee said, I very much regret the revival of these questions now as I do not think it will produce any good. Other occasions, Lee said, I prefer remaining silent to doing anything that might excite discussion at this time. Here's one that uh, I found interesting from 1867. He said, I felt so little desire to recall the events of the war since the secession of hostilities that I have not read a single work that has been published on the subject. And in late 1865, he said, it will be some time before the truth can be known, and I do not think that period has arrived. And by 1866, that circular I mentioned began producing results. Lee began getting material from many of his officers. And he found out something that I think any of you out there who have ever looked into primary material regarding some of the battles of the Civil War quickly came to realize, which was no two participants agree on all the details. Now, from our distance in time, it's pretty easy to sort, not easy, but it's much easier to sort of apply our own standards and and choose who we want. We don't have to face these people. Lee was in a real position of having to call, you know, some of his people liars or you know, as, it's not as you remembered it, General, a conversation I don't think Lee wanted ever to have. In fact, he said in 1869, after the accomplishment of an event, it is so easy, with the aid of our after knowledge, to correct errors that arise from the previous want of information 
that it's difficult to determine the weight that should be given to conclusions thus reached. And I think, understandably but sadly, the, the eagerness of the citizens of the South to see Lee write this book was a weight on his shoulders. Letter after letter saying, you know, yours will be the voice that will cut through everything and give us the true picture. This, I think, was a, a terrible burden, especially for a, a person who was not a writer primarily. So with all those things piled up, Lee never turned seriously to the subject and, and completed the book, or even really began it. So I was hoping in this, the, the little time we've had here that perhaps if I've been successful, some of you have been able to, for a moment at least, think that uh, I had in front of me and was flipping through Robert E. Lee's campaigns of the Army of Northern Virginia and sharing with you some of the discoveries I think we would have found if such a book had been written. Thank you very much. Okay, there's, uh, I'm told uh, for those of you who want to ask questions, there's actually a, you're going to be mic'd. These, these gentlemen and lady have uh, a microphone. So uh, any questions? Oh, good. <laughs> I can. <laughs> Anybody? Okay, all the way in the back. Let's make that, that person work. All right, you mentioned that Lee thought McClellan was his best opponent. Who did he consider his best lieutenant? He never, I can't tell you who he ever actually came out and said, said anything there. And, you know, there's a whole collection of comments ascribed to Lee about his subordinates that came after the war that really had agendas behind them. And I'm very cautious about using any of them. And Lee, for whatever reason, at least in all the writings I saw, never was really able, never really singled out anyone for special praise. Um, you could argue since he didn't talk about Longstreet, he didn't have a problem with him, but uh, I might be reading something into silence that isn't there either. So uh, I can't really say that he ever uh, had anyone there. Okay, I think it looks like right there. Could you comment on the relationship between Lee and uh, President Jefferson Davis? the difficulties and, and anything else you'd like to comment on? Well, what became obvious to me in writing this book is that, on the one hand, Lee had a, a strong communications link with Davis. I think he understood more than any other Confederate general that they served at the, uh, you know, they were at the service of the civilian arm, and he made significant serious efforts to keep Davis apprised of conditions and situations. Having said that, it was also clear that Lee and Davis were on divergent courses in terms of philosophy. Davis essentially believed that you drew a line around the Confederacy and if they crossed it, you slapped them back. Lee believed that with, the, with time, the North would accumulate greater and greater strength and slapping them back was not sufficient. You had to grind them up. So he undertook much more aggressive operations than I think Davis 
would have allowed any other, many of his other officers simply because he didn't trust a lot of his other officers because they kept him in the dark. They so Lee, on the one hand, I think nurtured a, 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 a bond of trust. On the other hand, he was pursuing an agenda that was dramatically different than that of the Confederate president in his prosecution of the war. Uh, all right, let's flip over into that side. Um, what? Wait, Mike coming down? <laughs> After Chancellorsville, that victory, and then the loss of Stonewall Jackson, would Lee have been better served to wait a little bit longer to go on the offensive into Pennsylvania and give his new subordinates the opportunity to grow into their jobs? Uh, good question. In a perfect world, yes, but Lee was in far from a perfect world. There was a thing called Vicksburg going on. And again, Davis believed that part of the way you preserve the integrity of that is you use your internal lines and move your resources quickly to threaten points. And one way of looking at it, the fact that in, in the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee was sitting on a tremendous amount of military resources. And there was a coterie within the Confederate government that says, let's use some of, this, some of these assets, ship them west, break the siege of Vicksburg, reestablish our control of the Mississippi, and then we can deal with Virginia. So Lee had gotten sort of a limited window of opportunity to undertake his operation to the north, and he, he felt if he dawdled too much, things could change dramatically and the deal could be off the table. So he moved more quickly than he wanted to, but from his point of view, with the greater objective of this being the right time to meet the enemy army, defeat the enemy army, he felt it was a risk he had to take. So he had to move fast then, although I'm, I'm sure he too would have preferred a little more time to season the army after Chancellorsville, but he, he didn't have the time. Okay, I see fingers pointing. Yes. How much uh, would you consider the failing health of Robert E. Lee in the latter days of his life to have contributed to him not working maybe towards the commentary you've suggested? His health? Well, clearly he is hes a lot sicker than I think we, we have in the image of our mind. Um, I just did an article. Uh, he took a tour for his health really just months before his death that took him through the south down to, to Florida and back. Uh, and it turned out to be a, a, a kind of a farewell to the south and the south's farewell to him. But you read his letters to his wife, and he's saying how much trouble it is to walk long distances. Uh, he, he, you know, he, he's, he's struggling against the physical infirmities. I'm kind of sorry, though. I think if he had... I think if the other issues of reconciling all the accounts of his officers and, and satisfying the expectations of the, of the South had not really weighed him down and he had brought a collaborator in, that we could have really seen some completion of this book. But with all those elements left on his own, his failing health was certainly a, a piece of that, of that at the end. Uh, I see one down here. Mike, coming to you, sir. Did Lee, did Lee have a comment on Lincoln's Gettysburg Address? No. Never had a word about it? No, never had a word about it. Nor, nor should he. I mean, I don't know that it... Military commanders, by their nature, are always planning ahead, not looking back. 
Um, you know, uh, I mean, Lee doesn't really, I mean, he writes, his reports, except for Gettysburg, appear fairly quickly after the battles, and that's the, really the last he visits them, and he's got other issues to, to deal with. And he was an astute reader of the political tea leaves. I mean, there are, there are I've skipped portions where he is commenting on movements in the North that could help the South and things we should do. For instance, the at the start of the uh, Antietam campaign, he's telling Davis, now's the time to put out a call for a peace conference. Better that we speak while on the offensive and offer to talk than try to talk after a defeat. So he's conscious of that, but I don't know that he ever zoned in. To, and I don't know that in the North this became the document we know it, the, the moment we know it to be until after the war. Last question. All right, I see the mic. You mentioned that uh, he had never commanded more than a company, yet he was able to move into a role like this. And so where did he learn this? What was his mentor? Where did he get his guidance on this? Suddenly going from a company commander to a general in charge of an army is a huge jump. Uh, let me answer with, with an anecdote, which may not seem to apply, but it, the punchline will. There was a famous story of uh, early, uh, late in the... 19th century, uh, telescopes had gotten strong enough that they could see Mars, and they could see what looked to be like canals. And so this one newspaper sent a, a, a message to a famous astronomer, said, is there life on Mars? Cable, 500 words. And he got back, nobody knows, <laughs> 250 times. <laughs> nobody knows. <laughs> I can't tell you. I've asked a few other historians. I said, how did this happen? Nobody knows. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>